Hi, I'm Gus Warland, and this is Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Shaw & Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and chat about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with Kirk Pengilly. Kirk is one of the founding members of In Excess, one of Australia's most notorious and successful rock bands. They've sold over 80 million albums worldwide, collected countless awards and trophies for their work from all over the globe, including three Grammy nominations and have been inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame. In this chat, we talk about Kirk's early years and family life, as well as what led him to meeting and forming the band. The story of In Excess is one of resilience and incredibly strong friendship. From late night recordings after their work at car yards all day to playing in front of hundreds of thousands of people, In Excess certainly was not an overnight success. We speak about the gruelling years of touring and churning out music, as well as the tenacious attitude of the band and how often they needed to evolve after events like Michael's death. Kirk has lived a full life and now has found peace in the more simple aspects of life. As for all these podcasts, Shaw and Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests. We discuss who that money goes to in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit. Let's get into our chat with Kirk Pengilly. Kurt, how are you, mate? I am good. Yeah. Lovely, lovely to see you and thank you for having us in your beautiful home. Thank you. What were you like as a kid, brother? I think I was sort of pretty quiet. I was born in Melbourne and at the age of eight we moved to Sydney to a place called Cottage Point, which is a really, you'd call it a remote little village, smack bang in the middle of the Karingai National Park. And it's, you know, 10 k's to civilization to Terry Hills. We had no electricity. This is in the 60s. You know, as a result of that, as an eight-year-old and, and onwards, fishing, swimming, boating, bushwalking, it was crap. You know. <laughs> but, um, Sounds perfect. But I spent a lot of time alone, you know, except for obviously when I went to school. And then when I was a bit older, started to occasionally have friends come and stay the weekend because we were kind of so cut off. And of course, later on, you know, in early high school, met Tim Farris and we became best mates and so on. But I think I was a little bit shy, a little bit sort of socially inept, but I wanted that social kind of interaction. You know, I really craved it. And I think that was probably one of the reasons that drew me towards you know, becoming a rock star. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Because I'd meet a lot of people. I reckon, <laughs> yeah. I reckon I've shaken hands with about a million people in my life. So <laughs> so you didn't do a lot of shaking hands in that first 10 or 15 years, but you made up for it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what was your family makeup? Well, I had a mum and a dad. Dad had been in advertising, had his own advertising agency in Melbourne, and at the age of 39 decided to retire and sell it and move to Cottage Point, much to mum's and my eldest brother's disgruntlement. So he was very kind of creative in that world, not musically really inclined. And mum was just mum, really. And then I had two older brothers, Drew and the eldest brother, Mark. And were you close to them? Was it a close family? Were you sort of similar in um, age? No, it's a fairly big gap, really. I think four or maybe close to five years between Drew, the next brother. I was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> mum had had a miscarriage and... Then they decided to try again, and apparently the, the miscarriage was a girl. So I think they treated me a little bit like a girl. You know, I was the girl they didn't have, <laughs> soft and gentle. And <laughs> but I was closest to Drew. Mark kind of left because he was a lot older. He left home after about 
well, he went into year 11 and 12 when we moved to Sydney. So he moved out, so didn't see a lot of him after that, whereas Drew, we've always been really close. But in saying that, you know, Mark was the one that got me into music. His couple of years, in, well, his influence up till I was about 10 was massive. Mm. And when you say music, was it you playing certain instruments? Or um, was it- well, he was a drummer in a band. He had a band and occasionally Dad would let us put the generator on so Mark's band could come and rehearse in the house. And I used to just sit there and watch it in awe and watch them practising and whatever. And then I think, yeah, around the time when he left home, he decided to take up guitar and bought himself a really you know, nice acoustic guitar and gave me this little beaten up one. <laughs> and I taught myself guitar on that. I used to just, I don't know how I, now when I think about it, it's extraordinary because I literally taught myself somehow I must have learned how to tune it. And then I used to play along to songs on the radio and work out the chords. Wow. Yeah, it's really weird. I don't know. I must have had a, a gift for it, uh, which got awakened when my oldest brother gave me this crappy little guitar. Fantastic. Is, yeah. is that, have you looked back that now and said that's the moment, I suppose, that the journey started for yeah, you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he used to put on records, I'd have to go to sleep earlier, and our rooms were kind of adjoining. It was a weird setup, but anyway, it had like a double door between the rooms right near my bed, so it was like a, a glass top half that opened up. So he'd put, you know, music on like, you know, The Rascals, Gordon Lightfoot, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, all that sort of stuff. And so I'd drift off to sleep listening to that every night, you know. So it obviously had some kind of influence on me, you know, just music was around me. What was his band like? I mean, you sat there in awe watching them. Were you like, I just want to dive in there and be a part of it? Was Yeah, it a- I, I'm not sure really what I thought at that point, you know, but ironically the guitar player in in Mark's band, a guy called Phil Colson, amazing guitar player. His daughter is Sia. Oh, yeah! So wow, I know. Which so there was that connection later on because yeah. I, I met Sia with I ran into Phil in Kings Cross, I think, when I was living up that way, and he was with Sia, and he introduced me, and she hadn't really even started her journey at that point. Uh, yeah, it was just that point of uh, of reference where you you know you meet someone, and then later on there's this other connection. And yeah. yeah. A lot of magic was happening in that room. Yeah. <laughs> so what sort of music did your brother's band play and what sort of music did you like to, to um, listen to once you decided to have your own yeah. LPs to listen to? Yeah, look, I went through all types of things. Obviously what was happening at the time, I was a big fan of Hendrix and as a guitar player and then later on I had fads of Deep Purple, Status Quo, Black Sabbath, a lot of kind of hard rock, which I just can't even listen to these days, that sort of stuff. And then later on, definitely much more kind of, I call it muso music, you know, musical stuff like when In Excess formed or the Farris Brothers, you know, we were listening to things like Steely Dan and Little Feet, all stuff that wasn't really that commercial, funnily enough. But Mark's band, I can't really remember what they, they did a lot of covers. And I do remember Mark taking me with him to a Hoadley's Battle of the Bands or Battle of the Sounds, I think it was called, <laughs> in the early 70s because they had entered themselves into the comp. And yeah. I think they came second or something, but I remember that was really eye-opening going to, I guess it was my first concert really, a whole lot of bands playing against each other and all that sort of thing. Well, it sounds like he was a huge part of sort of the, I don't know, putting the fire under mm. under you to get involved oh, in music. Oh, absolutely. If I look back at sort of, you know, me as a 13, 14, 15-year-old at school, doing musicals, in the choir, you yeah. know, that type of thing, and we all dreamt of being, you know, rock stars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at what point did you start 
doing your own stuff and start dreaming of perhaps being a rock star? Yeah, I think when I met Tim, which was in about 1971 or two, I think it was 71, second year high school, he had a little guitar. He'd just moved from Perth. The Farris brothers, had, you know, the family had just moved from Perth to Sydney and I think it was like third term or something in the science lab and I walked past the desk he was at and he had a little guitar drawer in his pencil case <laughs> And I was like, yeah, cool, man, you know. <laughs> we hit it off straight away and just started playing guitar together. And then a little bit later, we found a bass player and a drummer in high school and formed a band called Guinness, named after our bass player's dog. Because <laughs> I don't think we knew what beer was then. Who was named after the uh, yeah, Irish yeah. doubt? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think so. And at that point, I was starting to write original songs and I was the you know the the lead singer and the, and then as it turned out the the main songwriter but we did lots of covers and stuff as well as all bands do when they start it was uh, a long time ago yeah. <laughs> do you look back on those that at the start you know with Guinness and so yeah. forth with fond memories do you look back and go oh I remember that song we did I wish yeah. you know like Absolutely. If I if I hear like you know some of the the covers that I remember that we did, like I think "Who'll Stop the Rain" by Credence Clearwater was the first song we did together as a band, you know. And if I hear some of those songs, I just go, "Oh yeah." yeah. Do you have a copy of you guys? Um, I've got I've got uh, some bits of music. Yep, of course they're on cassette, so I don't even know if they're playable anymore. <laughs> yeah. or I do have a cassette player though. Recording techniques weren't like they were today. No. today, I should say. I mean, I, I remember, you know, for girlfriends, you know, you'd wait for the top 40, you'd hear the love song by Richard Marks yep. or something like that. You'd yeah. quickly record it yeah. and then... You and know, then we'll, the DJ would talk over the top yeah, of it and go, oh, mate, <laughs> you're talking for, brother. <laughs> so all the way through school, music is your focus or are you yeah. quite academic as well? Are oh, you, not are really. Are you sporty? No, look, the whole music thing and absolutely. I didn't do music in school. I can vaguely read music. None of us could, really. There's no call for it in modern music. So I didn't do music in school, but certainly, yeah, we were just talking music all the time and introducing each other to new things we've heard and stuff like that. So that was the focus. And and I, I was fairly good in school, but all my report cards, like most people, I think, were you know, could do more effort. In fact, one that was recurrent was Kirk seems to be away with the birds. <laughs> Which I think meant that I was always just looking out the window dreaming of stuff, you know, yeah. or whatever, not paying attention. <laughs> My brother was like that. He got like 80% but effort three, which meant the minimal. Yeah. You know, he could always do better, but he yeah. just he's just going to cruise through. So yeah. that's him. That was pretty team. much me, I think. <laughs> and so you're looking at, looking at the birds, <laughs> thinking about the birds. Are you thinking about what you ended up becoming or are you – just a young kid thinking about a whole lot of other things. Yeah, look, I think just a young kid. I mean, definitely thinking about music and, and all that, but just the same as any other kid. You know, I really like that girl, but I'm too scared to go and <laughs> say something and whatever. <laughs> and it was difficult for me too, living at Cottage Point. Mum and Dad ended up opening up a restaurant in the house at Cottage Point. Oh, really? Yeah. So they were busy during the days and I could get a bus to Terry Hills home, but then it was 10K into the National Park from there. So I literally on many occasions used to walk the 10Ks with my suitcase because we used to have cases back then. I've still got calluses on my hand from carrying that bag. I can't. I don't know why they're still there. It's bizarre. Poor but man. I would hitchhike as well because they couldn't pick me up. So imagine that, hitchhiking into a National Park. That's a school <laughs> Am kid. I mad? Yeah, <laughs> <my God. laughs> but that's what happened. Or, or it would be pouring with rain and I'd just walk home. 
you know, the 10Ks. And, and I don't remember it really bothering me. In fact, again, it was that the serenity, how's the serenity yeah. um, of being <laughs> just in the National Park and it certainly paved my desire to always have beautiful surroundings, as you can see where we live here over freshwater oh, and, yeah. you know. But, yeah, it was, I think, as far as, you know, trying to date girls and that, I thought, well, pff, what am I going to do? I'm, you know, I'm going to hitchhike out to go on a date, you know, yeah. hitchhike out of Cottage Point to go on a date. And hitchhike back to meet mum and dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was difficult to have a, that sort of a relationship and that sort of thing back then. Made up for it later, though. Yeah, I'm sure you did. <laughs> Your mum must be a special person to leave what I imagine was sort of like a nice posh lifestyle in Melbourne yep. to live in the middle of the rain. Forest or yep. the National Park. Yeah, she hated it. How do they work with your dad just doing what he wanted oh, to do? Oh, well, yeah, that was just maybe how the hierarchy was those days in that generation, you know. Poor mum. She hated cooking and then dad opens a restaurant. You know? Yeah, like <laughs> so he's given her a double whammy. Yeah, totally. So well, I think the- Did they stay together? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, all right to the end. And the restaurant ended up getting closed down because we're, I can't say we we're in suburbia, but, you know, we had houses next door and the, the house- next door to us, most of them were holiday houses, they took mum and dad to court because they hated the fact that we had the restaurant there and they found some little loophole in the council zoning and they had to shut it down. So they immediately put the house on the market and dad decided to become a farmer. So they bought a couple of hundred acres down in Goulburn and that was right when I was doing my HSC. And around that Christmas time when our house sold, dad said, well, you either move to Goulburn or get a job because they were moving to Goulburn. You know? Right. And so. You didn't thought about perhaps letting you have your run into the HSC? And- well, no, I'd done my HSC. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I'd done it. It all timed perfectly with that. Okay. So, but it was literally, you know, late December or early January. I went down to the employment office down in Brookvale and got a job starting the next day at the car yard of Bill Buckle Autos in Brookvale as a yard boy. And so I moved out, moved in with friends that were in Whale Beach and lived there for a couple of years and gradually moved towards the city as I got older. Yeah. <laughs> we spoke to Lainey on another, your wife, Lane Beachley, is obviously a absolute legend and seven-time world surfing champion and so forth. We'll talk about how you met a little bit later, but <laughs> she did mention, even though how beautiful this is here in Freshie, you do miss at times the... The buzz of, yeah, the, look, of the city. When I met Lane, I'd been living in Potts Point for probably 12 or 13 years at that point. The buzz of, and you know, restaurants and cafes and stuff in walking distance and it was just a really, a lifestyle, I think, probably in sort of, you know, rebellion to my very kind of quiet life at Cottage Point as a kid. I always craved just stuff, you know, stuff going on and, Hustle and bustle and noise. So, yeah, I kind of, we've been in this house here for nearly 14 years, I think. And I still kind of do miss the city buzz and that sort of thing, you know. Although, as I'm, time's going on, I'm starting to kind of, that's waning a bit, which is good. Yeah. The but, next uh, stage of your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to HSC. You're a Bill Buckle. You, yep. you, I imagine not exactly loving being the yard boy. Oh, I actually loved it. Okay. Um, you know, the money, as far as I'm concerned, was good. Uh, I think I was earning 112 bucks a week, which, you know, mind you, this is 1976, 77 or whatever. And the used car yard, which it was, the salesmen were just hilarious. They were the classic car salesmen. Old school. That you, yeah, that, you know, you can, can imagine like dodgy and, <laughs> and, and lovely. And always, you know, like if a 
pretty girl walked into the yard to buy something, they would be fighting to get out there and look and look after her. <laughs> you know, it was pretty funny. Lots of funny stories. The most important decision of the day was lunch. Um, <laughs> so one of my jobs was to travel sometimes, you know, far and wide to go to a restaurant that allegedly has, you know, the best whatever it was, you know, and pick up the takeaway and bring it back to them. And yeah, it was it was good fun. Good it fun. And, I, like and I just had to, you know, keep the cars clean and make sure they all started and all that sort of thing. And I'd fall asleep, like start a bunch of cars up in a row and then next I'd feel this shaking on my shoulder because I've dozed off to the floor on this car, you know, with it going, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'd fallen asleep because we'd been rehearsing all night or, you know, whatever. They were really forgiving with all that. They loved the fact that we had a band. And yeah. I ended up getting jobs sort of indirectly for a couple of the other guys in the band as well. Good on you. Yeah. So you're sort of around 20-ish. What's the band at that stage and what are you doing and are you thinking, look, one day we'll end up, you know, yeah, making yeah. a living out of this? Yeah, look, I think without it sounding kind of weird, Tim and I, when we met, hit it off and we just – we just used to say to each other, we're going to be, you know, bigger than the Beatles. You know, we're going to do this. Yeah. And we literally believed it. But the band that I had that I was the singer in kind of broke up in, I don't know, I think it was maybe early 77, so a year and a bit after we'd finished high school. And then I just didn't really want to do anything for a while and it was Tim that maybe six months later instigated a kind of jam session with his brothers and also with Michael and Gary and a few other musicians and that was the start of the Farris Brothers. So that was early 77. And that was a pretty awesome day. I still can vividly remember because we built a little studio in Avalon. So we used to rehearse in there and we did the little jam session with all the brothers in that place. And I think we worked on about three or four songs, but there was definitely something special, a chemistry that we all felt that day. And that spurred us on to go, well, let's do something with this. And, and we did. <laughs> you sure did. So what's the next step from such a wonderful day like that? I mean, so many people on the Northern Beaches talk about seeing you guys. Like, Can you believe that we saw them just there, yeah, yeah, you know, like yeah. the Antler or whatever it might be? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. how long did it take from that moment of those four songs and you go, this is something here, through to, you know what, we're actually in excess and we are really yeah. awesome? <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, where do I start with this? I think, you know, look, we just started rehearsing and we didn't have any gigs or anything and we ended up finding a, a place, a factory in Brookvale that a car wholesaler said we could have for like five bucks a, a rehearsal or something, you know, <laughs> just to pay for the electricity. So we just started rehearsing and Andrew, the middle of the Farris Brothers, he wrote songs, I wrote songs and Michael wrote lyrics and so we just started amassing a set to be able to play live with covers and, and all that sort of stuff. And we got a few gigs and Avalon RSL was one of the first ones. And then what happened was John, the youngest of the three brothers, he was still in high school and the Farris family decided to move back to Perth and therefore John had to go to Perth with them. Mm. So we all went, we'll, we'll go too. So we all left our jobs, our girlfriends and everything else and moved to Perth for about a year and we survived, shall we say maybe two, three gigs a week. The problem was is Perth was very much a covers band and, and also a, probably a, a hard rock kind of, that's what was predominantly popular and we weren't doing any of that. So, so I don't know, somehow we managed to survive and save up enough money then to move back to Sydney. 
John ended up falling out of school because he was falling asleep in, in class and all that. So that gave the opportunity for us to all move back to Sydney. And that was in early 79, I think. And we started playing around Manly Vale Hotel, which is no longer there. That was kind of our home ground, whereas the Antler was Midnight Owls' home ground. We started to do gigs, and, and from there we met Gary Morris, who was Midnight Oil's manager, and he took us on board for a little while, and he's the one who instigated changing the name from what we were called, the Farris Brothers Band, to In Excess. How did they come up with the name? Well, it's the first thing he said when we went into the first meeting with him was, the name's got to go. You know, it <laughs> sounds like a circus kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> What did the Ferris brothers think about that? Uh, they, I, did, I think they were pretty, you know, look, we were open to doing whatever it took and if it means changing the name or whatever. And then he also was very instrumental in kind of, he decided to come up with outfits for each of us, like a kind of a trip, shall we say. It's not anything we even ever thought of, you know. I, I think I was still kind of wearing leftover hippie clothes, you know. It was the 70s kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Never even really thought about dress sense and, and all that sort of stuff. And so it was Gary that really brought that on. And it was pretty funny. He put two or three of the guys in white overalls. I had like this blue King G outfit. And poor Timmy had to wear a see-through yellow kind of raincoat suit. Oh. <laughs> it was a bit hot, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty hot. Plastic. <laughs> yeah. Know? But anyway, we sort of, you know, because he managed Midnight Oil, we did a, a tour up the East Coast opening for Midnight Oil. They weren't too impressed because, you know, now Gary was dividing his attention uh, with another band and all that sort of thing. But the, I guess the, the cruncher with Gary was one day he took us for a ride in his HR Holden, all seven of us in the car, <laughs> and we parked up on top of a factory in Brookvale and he began a spiel of how he'd been to see Billy Graham, the great evangelist, and had become a you know born-again Christian and he said, I'm telling you guys that the biggest bands in you know the world are going to be Christian bands and you guys have to become Christians. And we just all went, you know, not that we were opposed to it, but we just thought, oh, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute, you know. So we parted ways with Gary um, <laughs> and we went sort of crawling to uh, Chris Murphy, who was an agent at the time. He'd booked some of the gigs that we'd done with Midnight Oil and whatever. You know, Tim was kind of managing us, Tim Farris. And he just kept relentingly pushing the idea of Chris managing us. And he didn't want to do it. And he didn't want to do it. And eventually he broke. Um, <laughs> so he took over management and that was in mid to late 89. And yeah, Chris was, uh, well, mostly on, but on, off, on working with us until he passed away, you know, earlier this year. Yeah. And an absolute legend. Mm. I remember you coming in with him to Triple M Many times, and yep. just the you could just tell the friendship. The you've been yeah. through so much with all the war stories and yep. so much success. And he would have taken a bullet for us. He was so passionate and also brilliant guy as far as sort of outside the box thinking and and marketing and like, well, we don't have to do it that way. We're going to do it this way. And he ruffled a lot of feathers along the way, probably most of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But but it was just his. Uh, he lived and breathed in excess and. Later on when we brought him back in to sort of look after us, he was super hesitant because he knew that if he, he committed to working with us again, for him it's 24-7. It's just blinkers on and off he goes, which it was. And, you know, I'd hate to think that that lifestyle he led because of that was what ended up participating in passing away. But anyway, he was a great guy. and He wouldn't have wanted any other way? No, I don't think so. Yeah. No. So yeah. at what point in your life do you go, actually, 
we're a big deal now. Yeah. Like, this is like, we're, we're, is there a moment where you go, wow, we're not just driving around at Brookvale yeah, now look, doing the, bits and bobs? We're, it's incremental, you know, because we, we recorded our first album after gigs, like Midnight to Dawn Shift in the studio in Leichhardt, I think it was. And so, you know, we do sometimes three gigs a night at that point because like every pub had bands every night. It was amazing. Mm. So we were playing, you know, virtually every night in different pubs around Sydney and then later on Melbourne and Brisbane and started travelling. But we did the first album and it was literally really just going in and recording the songs as we were playing them live. So it was pretty easy. We had a budget of about five bucks, you know. Um, (laughs) And so that album came out and hearing for the first time one of our songs on the radio, that was like, oh, We've made it. You know. was, it tri- was it Triple M who played it? Can you remember? Triple M didn't exist. Okay. Because um, this was 1980. So it just started. I think starting it, in 80. Maybe yeah. it just started. Yeah, yeah. But no, it was actually in, we were in Melbourne doing, you know, we used to go to Melbourne, stay in a, a dive hotel for about three weeks and do all the pubs in Melbourne. And then we'd drive back in, you know, sometimes the one car back to Sydney and do a few weeks in Sydney and then go up to Brisbane and drive up there and do a few weeks. And it was a circus life. Did you love the circus life? Yeah, absolutely. Every minute of it, you know, and and that was the thing. It was none of it was well as I recall because I loved every bit about it. I think there was, you know, certainly a bit later on, some of the guys in the band didn't like touring and all that sort of stuff. But they didn't get their way because we toured and toured and toured for a decade. But you know, speaking of tipping point or when you you know you realise you've made it, I don't know that you ever do because you're always thinking ahead and thinking, okay, you know, okay, we just achieved that. Now we've got to win the Super Bowl again kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But definitely, obviously, around the Kick album, which was released about 10 years after we'd started. So it wasn't like it was an overnight success. But around the Kick album, and it was crazy, a crazy time and so much demand put on us for press and media and appearances and blah, blah, blah. And it was just mental. It was literally every minute was mapped out in our lives as far as a schedule goes and that sort of thing. So when every minute of every day, you know, is mapped out, all of a sudden you're not doing necessarily the stuff that started the singing. Did you mind all the stuff that happened around singing? If anything, I would say it was the travel that was the downer because it's just such a waste of time. You know, when we first went to North America in 83, you know, they have – tour buses and they're a bus with bunks and they have a front lounge and a rear lounge and you pretty much live in that bus. There'd be hotels here and there but quite often it'd be, you know, come off stage, jump on the bus and drive to the next city which could be six hours. It could be sometimes a lot of what we called overnighters which, Mm. you know, you'd be driving sometimes for 15, 16 hours. That part of it was kind of a waste of time so to speak. Andrew, who pretty soon became the main songwriter, he felt he couldn't write when, you know, with bouncing around in a bus and all that sort of stuff. So for him, he was the one who really hated touring. And I think it was more that. We all loved being on stage, but it was that part of it around it that was a whole chunk of life you never get back, you know. <laughs> Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shore and Partners Financial Services. Shuram Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shuram Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shurampartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. 
Ventura Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. So rock and roll people go, right, okay. I want to be a rock and roll star. <laughs> yeah. I, want, I want the, you know, if you're a bloke, you want the girls, you want the the parties and that sort of stuff. How much of being a part of InXS was that type of thing? Ah, uh, you're trying to dig up the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there was a part of it, but we realised early on that every night mattered and that we had to be at our best every night. So we slipped here and there, but predominantly we're pretty good kids in the early days. Later on when we'd, we'd sort of realised, okay, you know, when we got to the point of doing sort of stadiums and stuff around the world, you can't do night after night. So, and in the bigger cities, there'd always be parties because there'd be record companies throwing a party for you and blah, blah, blah. And, but, you know, well, for me anyway, I can't vouch for the other guys completely, but I'm really anal about time and being on time and being ready and prepared and, and all that sort of stuff. I drive Lane mad because she's the opposite. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I would know what my curfew should be uh, and that sort of thing so that I'd get enough sleep and have enough time to pack in the morning to get on whatever mode of transport we were travelling on for that day and that sort of thing. Erred sometimes, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't be perfect. Yeah. But, look, all of it was a lot of fun. It, it really was and it was you know, we were so passionate about what we were doing and, and all that sort of stuff. So for me, I just, I, at the time, none of it was bad. I just enjoyed it all. Oh, yeah. sounds fantastic. Yeah. What was the greatest couple of gigs you ever played? Like the, those moments where you're on stage and you are doing what you do and you just go, I'm literally the king of the world right now. Like <laughs> Michael's just over there. I've got my mates yeah. over here. Yeah, yeah. And we are playing Wembley or whatever it might be. I'm not sure that I ever thought I was king of the world, but um, <laughs> Michael might have. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, look, there were so many great shows along the way. One of the first that came to mind was, I think it was in about 85 or 86, we did a, a special performance down in Melbourne with a bunch of other bands, Australian bands, for Prince Charles and Princess Di, so, and we got to meet them after and all that. Was she um, as beautiful as oh, we expect? Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, just just glowed aura. But that was a really kind of special, a, a special gig kind of thing, and we recorded that that night as well. I loved, uh, I think, the South American gigs in general. We, you know, we were the first international act to play in Argentina ever uh, in 84 at a stadium there, and we were the first international band to play in Mexico City. I think it was 91. No outside band had been allowed into Mexico City after the Doors had played there in the 60s. And obviously oh. I never found out really what happened, but they banned international acts. So we were the first allowed in to Mexico City in 91. So we ended up doing a lot of touring through South America and in some respects really opened the doors to other acts to go there and tour. We headlined Rock and Rio that same year that we played Mexico, which was amazing, 160,000 people. Wow. And yeah, it was, it's incredible because it's just, you know, you end up not really seeing any single person because it's just a sea of people. As far as the eye can see. Yeah. And actually, another one that was really interesting was in at the end of our first ever tour of North America, opening up for Adamant in 83. We did the US Festival in California, which was put on by the, the two guys that started Apple, Apple Computer. And it was a three-day outdoor festival. We were the second band on and we got an encore. And so we were just like, oh, 
you know, that was that was the point of like we've made it. Yeah. Know? Because no none of the opening acts normally are even allowed to do an encore, but we got an encore and there was allegedly two hundred and fifty thousand people there over the course of the weekend. And it was on a gentle sloping hill, like out in somewhere in, you know, in California. About halfway up, the audience disappeared into the smog. So we couldn't see the back half of the audience because of the smog. Wow. The, the LA smog kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. But that, that was a really memorable gig too, you know. It was so important for us to just go on and on stage. And because we'd had hundreds of gigs under our belt from the pub scene in Australia, we had sort of a, you know, we had a one-up on most other international acts because they didn't have that upbringing, shall we say, mm. um, of, you know, playing every night for a couple of years, which is what we did in the pubs here. You were fit. Um, ready and rearing and we were a machine, yeah. <laughs> you know, well. on stage. And, uh, and, and quite often it was always said that blew the main act off stage and blah, blah, blah. But there was sort of proof in the pudding that night because we got an encore. That's so great. The one thing that I wanted to talk to you about now quickly was the TV show and the sort of – Oh, yeah, yep. Because I've got three kids, 22, 20 and 18, and they've got – the kick album in their Spotify yeah, playlist, right. you know, and all of a sudden a whole lot of people went, God, this in excess is pretty good. And we're like, um, yeah, we were there when it first happened, kids. And yeah, they're like, the it's first like they time were coming around. back to us going, oh, there's this band called, and Midnight All, the same thing, and Dragon. And a lot yeah. of Aussie rock and roll bands have, are now in the Spotify lists of yeah. our kids. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, really? I don't know why that is. I, I put it down to in some respects to, well, one, got to be great songs, but I think it was real musicians playing real instruments and there's something about that, I think. I mean, I'm, I love a lot of current music and, and that sort of thing too, but, but yeah, it was just different. I think there was a lot more point of differences too between all the different bands. That was how you made it. You had to have some kind of point of difference to the next guys or whatever. Yeah, it is interesting, but Rockstar, you know, that came about, Obviously, you know, Michael, our original singer, passed away in 97. We were obviously gutted and thought, well, that's, that's it. You know, our, our career's over. We've, we've lost our front man and, you know, it's, it's irreplaceable and all that. And it was actually Jimmy Barnes that we were in the studio maybe a year later, I think, going through all our old tapes, listening to see if we had any songs that we hadn't released and maybe we can do something with them and whatever. And Jimmy called up, won't even try to do Jimmy's sort of shouting Scottish accent, but <laughs> but he basically shouted down the phone at us, you know, I want you guys to play uh, Mushroom Records are having a 25th anniversary and we'd recorded one song with Jimmy, Good Times, a few years prior and when Michael was alive and that had been released on Mushroom. And so he said, I want you guys to perform with me at this concert in Melbourne for this 25th anniversary and we ummed and ahed a bit and then we thought, oh, what the heck. And so we did it and, you know, we rehearsed three or four songs, I think, and, and played at the, at, the, uh, at the gig in Melbourne. And, you know, the reaction, the crowd reaction was shocking, astounding. You know, we just didn't expect it to sort of to get such an amazing reaction. And so that sort of spurred the idea on that, well, okay, we, we're still in excess. We still sound like in excess. we just got to find the right singer. So through a, a process of a different, a bunch of different things that happened, we ended up approaching John Stevens, and he sang with us for about three, four years, I think. And it was, oh, you know, I owe so much to John for doing that because it really 
put our faith back in us and and brought us out of our hole that we'd kind of dug and and helped us realize that yes we could continue and whatever unfortunately it didn't really move forward with new material and so we kind of decided that well, we're going to try something else now or whatever and so the idea of doing a tv show to do a, an international search for a, a new singer we thought we could get someone known you know we're always going to face the comparison situation where they're mm. going to compare them to michael and whatever so we thought well let's try and find a diamond in the rough you know uh, someone unknown so we teamed up with mark burnett who was at that time kind of reality show king behind the apprentice and survivor and all these sorts of shows and so we teamed up with mark to do the production of it and Tim and I set off around the world going to auditions in all the major cities around the world which was a long other story in itself because some of them were just like oh my god how are we going to find someone you know were you, in, were in you New doing York. the comparison zone in your uh, own head too like no no I think there was definitely a bunch of us in the band that were going we need a female singer because then there's not the comparisons, you know, or we need to be that sort of radical with it. So we were looking at men and women, of course, but I'll never forget in New York, I, I don't know what if the ad in the paper had sort of read incorrectly, but we got a whole bunch of, you know, Broadway kind of peeps come down and sing for us. And it was just like Tim and I were just like, oh, we're, we're going to die, you know, we're, this is it. This is You're the end. You're trying to be polite of it. Yeah, this is the end of our career, like. No way, you know. Listen, like yeah, yeah. Oh, it was horrible. But there was some great, great ones there as well. But it was just sure. funny that we got sort of all these kind of Broadway sort of uh, trained people, you know. Anyway, trying to cut it short, but we uh, so we went went and did the TV show and was on Foxtel here, which we were a little bit disappointed with, only because Foxtel was not you know not that big then. This was in two thousand and five, so. For about twenty percent of the, if pop, that, yeah, you know, if that maybe, but at least in America it was on CBS and and it was on other big networks around the world. Extremely nerve wracking, extremely risky to do, and lots of heated discussions with Mark Burnett about how we need to do this and fights over. He wanted the stage set to be in the shape of a guitar with a finger, and it's like. Country music awards, you know, you can't do this, and had to fight with him to to make it, you know, look like a club and get the audience right down the front, so it was like a gig, which none of the other shows like Idol and stuff were doing back then. You know, we had a real rock band that was the backing band, you know, really primo musicians, well known. Like the music director was the, the music director for people like Sure and and all, you know, they're all big gun mm. musicians. In fact, it was intimidating for us to have to get up and play at one point in the show because really? they are so amazing, all this band, this house band as we call them, you know. But anyway, it <laughs> uh, it was a very interesting journey and and very, you know, out of our comfort zone and all that. And, and we ended up with the guy that we all said at the start, there's no way he's going to be our singer, but he ended up being the one that sort of had – all the goods as far as charisma and a bit dangerous and a bit unpredictable and he had a, a great voice and, and all that sort of stuff. So he seemed to be the one that wanted it the most as well. So we ended up picking JD Fortune and straight away went in and recorded the album that we did with him, Switch, in, in about three weeks, I think, and then went on tour. And did you love that experience? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was great at first, but then it – 
Yeah, it kind of got difficult. I think, you know, look, he was a guy that was allegedly living in his car boot before entering into the show. And, and I think that sort of from, you know, a car boot to selling out arenas in North America and Australia and all that sort of thing was a massive ask for a young guy without the experience that, you know, that we'd had and all that sort of thing. For us, it was just, oh, you know, it's another gig. But for him, it was oh, life-changing. Life yeah. yeah, yeah, totally yeah, life-changing. And then, and so then he didn't handle it pretty much. I think he just found, it, you know, it was obviously too much for him. And so we're, after about 18 months, I think, close to two years, we said, oh, look, I'm going to stop for a while and we'll think about what we do next and all that. We did end up a couple of years later when we brought Chris Murphy back on, did end up doing some more gigs with, with JD for a while there and then we decided that was enough, try, either time to do something different or to pull the plug on it sort of thing. Mm. Where are you now? Where are you now in your own life? And obviously beautiful house here, you love Lainey, you've been together for a long time, you're yeah. like soulmates. Absolutely. What's the future look like for you? Um, well, look, I'm kind of right. I guess I'm retired, you know, I'm 63 Gee, you don't look 63. Uh, no, do you look really you good? You can come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love my simple life. I'm, I'm the housewife, you know, I do the cooking and the, mostly the washing and all that sort of stuff. It's all the stuff I wasn't able to do in my previous life where I was just always on tour, you know. I couldn't cook in my hotel room, although I did, I did attempt to a few times. <laughs> but all that simple stuff, I'm just loving it. Australia is just a wonderful place to live and I've got other passions now. I haven't really announced it yet, but I've bought out a rosé. I actually had a bottle. Lainey gave me a bottle no, a couple of weeks ago uh, and, it, mate, it was beautiful. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually working on marketing my very small batch of rosé and just trying to get it into a few restaurants and get it sort of get it going and see what happens. So that's taken up quite a bit of time in the last 12 months or so. And, I, and for decades I've gambled heavily on the stock market, which I still do. I love that. Just really enjoy. So is that uh, you with a laptop in the morning yep. going through stuff, doing yep. your own calls? Uh, some of it, yeah. I trade on you know, an online platform as well as I do have a stockbroker company that I've been with for 20 years, I think. Different stockbrokers have looked after me as time's gone yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they come and go. But yeah, I, I really enjoy that. And up until recently, we had a, Lane and I found a little cottage at Cottage Point. We sold it at the beginning of this year, but we had it for about, five or six years I always wanted to go back there and we found this little cottage for sale and Airbnb'd it so I managed that which was a freaking nightmare <laughs> I'll never do that again which <laughs> it was me that instigate selling it because I just couldn't couldn't cope I got so busy in 2020 obviously with people not being able to go overseas yeah. and fastidious uh with how it was set up and it's a fully sort of stocked kitchen not so much food but making sure that, you know, there was all the teas and the coffees and the sugar and the salt and pepper shakers were filled and, you know, yeah. it's nuts. And and then, you know, there were a few times where I was cleaning the toilet going, is this where I wanted to end up? Yeah. <laughs> was I playing in front that, of 250,000 yeah. people? And here I am leaning over a toilet bowl. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit of, you know, it was a, an interesting time, but it was a lot of maintenance to the property and all that sort of stuff and setting it up for when guests come and then checking that things hadn't been broken. Or, you know, it's just mm. like, what am I doing? You don't need to do this. And so anyway, we sold it in February, but that took up a lot of time in the last five or six years up until we sold it as well. So I'm actually just 
bathing in, basking in sort of, uh, you know, sunlight of not having any sort of commitments like that now. And not that we've been able to go anywhere for, you know, on and off for the last 18 months anyway. It's just been nice having a simple life and not having to be anywhere and mm. kind of do anything other than cook and drink wine. and Yeah, and just be with Lane. <laughs> yeah, and just be with Lane. That's pretty cool. I'd like to do that. That sounds a good. That sounds a pretty good life. I have had an amazing life. I'm, I'm, you know, totally grateful and and humbled by everything that's occurred in it. So, very, very fortunate. Do you ever just slip on an album and listen to? Never. No, no, I don't. I don't listen to our music in excess music. You know, unless, unless something's happening and I need to have a listen to an, a, a new mix of something or whatever. I don't actually do anything sort of musically now i've just decided i I did everything i could have possibly have wanted to do i was never a campfire guy sitting around strumming my acoustic guitar anyway when i was a kid i was but when we became professional and all that some of our tours went for like eight months around the world and the last thing i'd want to do when i got home was Hey, honey, can I sing you a song? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kumbaya. <laughs> Never. A bit of American pie. Yeah, exactly, yeah. you know. So, uh, you know, I just switch on and switch off and now I've kind of switched off. So I do have a guitar downstairs, but it's not often I pick it up and, and play it and, and I don't regret that at all. Uh, do people ask you at dinner parties? They go, oh, mate, could you yeah, just? Yeah, oh, mate, rip a tune out. <laughs> oh, you know, I've done a few weddings and, yeah, for close for close friends. <laughs> yeah, I was doing you know corporate gigs Q and A only, and and then if they pay a bit more, I'd sing a couple of songs for them. Mm. But of course, that's all been sort of shut down in the last eighteen months, and I won't do it on Zoom because I've done a few of those on Zoom. But unless you know the sound's set up properly and all that, I'm I'm not not willing to risk singing a couple of songs. No, fair enough. But yeah, you know, it's just as I said, the simple life is good after such a complicated life. Mm. I appreciate it. Yeah, good on you. I love that. Let's finish off with the top five questions. Your favourite. Is this pop- like the first word? No, this is really easy. This is really easy. It's like a psychiatry, you know. <laughs> yeah, look in my eyes. Yeah, that's the first word that comes into your head. Your favourite holiday destination? Ooh, well, I'll go with whatever first comes into your mind. Definitely uh, the homestead at El Cuestro in uh, in. Well, Western Australia, nearly Northern Territory, Western Australia. Most amazing place I've ever been to. It's uh, built on a on the top of a gorge and in a couple of the rooms you go out into your balcony and you're looking down into the gorge where wow. there's crocodiles swimming around and you can throw like bread off the veranda and the crocodiles swim over to the bread and eat it. And it's extremely pricey and it's one of those all-inclusive kind of things but it's just the whole property is amazing. I love Rainforest and waterfalls and all that sort of unicorns and yeah. rainbows and <laughs> whereas Lane likes you know surf the the bigger the better sort of thing so yeah. we kind of again we're quite opposite in a lot of those ways but yeah to me that that place is heaven and there's all sorts of things you can do there it's just a, a magical spot sounds great mm. are you a reader have you got a favourite book I am an avid reader and I'm a Kindle guy because I read so much that I couldn't have books you know you wouldn't be able to sit in this room and as far as favorite books goes not really but I didn't read at all after my school years really I just I didn't read predominantly at all and then maybe 10 years ago I picked up this book called Clan of the Cave Bears I think it might even be partially a 
children's book. I don't know, but but the fascination to me was it was it was about kind of where Neanderthal man meets caveman kind of thing. That transition that must have happened when man jumped a notch intelligently wise, and it's about this girl that gets orphaned and picked up by the cave dwellers, and she's different and all that sort of thing. You know, I just found it fascinating. So from that point on. I just started reading again. Yeah, and like I the fire in the belly again. Yeah, I did. I love it. I Good love on it. you. It's the last thing I do before I go to sleep. So yeah, best way to go to sleep, I reckon. Yeah. Have you got a quote or a saying, something that you live your life by, or someone <laughs> said something to you one day and you went, "Oh, yeah, well, that makes sense to me." <laughs> again, first thing that comes in, keep it as a hobby. That was what my father told me through my whole childhood when I was living at home and trying to teach myself guitar and then got a band and dad always said keep it as a hobby you have to get a real job <laughs> and and funnily enough uh, about oh you know many years later I think it was our fourth or fifth album you know it had gone platinum or whatever here in Australia and the record company said oh do you guys want like a plaque made, you know, the, the platinum record plaque thing made for family members or any, you know, anyone that's special, you know, Chris Murphy. Yeah. Um, he got one anyway. Yeah. But uh, So I said, yeah, I want one for mum and dad. And on it, I put in inverted commas, keep it as a hobby. <laughs> and dad got pride of place and dad just loved it. I bet. You know, because he, he, he got it, you know, he, uh, he got it. But that was his saying, keep it as a hobby. I think that is beautiful. I can just imagine his face. <laughs> Favorite movie? So many, so, so many that are that mean a lot, you know. Because we used to sit on the bus touring around America, just watching movies all the time. Video, VHS videos. Yeah. Um, there's some of those movies that we just watched over and over again, like Caddyshack. Um, <laughs> there was a whole lot of them, really. But one of my favorite movies, and I just don't know why it gets to me. It's called The Prestige. It's got Michael Caine. I think Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I think David Bowie plays a little David part Bowie in that as plays, well. David yeah. uh, Nikola Tesla. But I, I just found it just such a fascinating concept and it was it's about, you know, two competing magicians in the early 1900s trying to outdo each other sort of thing. But it's really dark and really, yeah. really kind of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's almost believable and especially you know, there's one of the characters, as you said, David Bowie plays Nikola Tesla who is probably my all-time He'd be my first person, I would say, at a dinner table, you know, like who would you like at a dinner table? Yeah. Fascinating inventor and and literally if we'd gone with with his forward thinking instead of Edison's, we'd be living in a different world and a much better world power-wise for a start. He was a genius. Anyway, he impacts quite heavily in, in the story as well in The Prestige. So, yeah, I love that movie. Beautiful. Final question and most importantly, and I know that you've got a very – you know, a charity very close to your heart. Sean Partners, who are sponsoring this podcast, are giving $10,000 to all our guests to give away oh. to a charity of your choice. So I know you've spoken about it on Triple M many times. Yeah. Could you tell us, you know, <laughs> well, who are you going to give to and what will they do with ten grand? Yeah. Well, yes, I, I'm currently an ambassador for Glaucoma Australia. 
but I don't think I'll pick them. Okay, great. <laughs> they're they're going to hate me. <laughs> and the reason I say that is that there's a couple of organisations out there that look after musos and stuff when if they've been in accidents or they're, they're retired or and also there's one for crew guys drive around in the trucks and set up the band gear all the time and they don't have a life and you know if they get injured they're not skilled in anything else what do they do so i think probably both those charities i'll split it Perfect. Okay, so we'll get the names of those and make sure they get that $5,000. And if you've heard the Lane Beachley podcast, you've heard the love story and how that all happened, which is why we didn't go into it with Kurt. But thank you so much. There's so much we could have got to that we haven't because of time. But thanks so much for your time. I I will tell a different side to the story. (laughs) Oh, will you now? Well, she said that that she wasn't interested and you're all over like a chick. No, no. Oh, (laughs) Such a liar, that girl. Don't believe anything that comes out of her mouth. <laughs> no, we're, she was right. We weren't. Both of us were not interested at all. And the first date was a disaster and probably it is a similar story, although when we do tell it, we always interrupt each other and say, no, no, that's not, I don't know. not how I remember. Yeah. <laughs> how does that happen? Yeah. You're both there, but. <laughs> well, the thing is that you're still together now all these Absolutely. years on and that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Looking after each other and loving each other. So thanks for your time, mate. Thank you. That was Kirk Pengilly. What a humble and grounded guy. What I loved about him was just how relaxed he was and the fact when I said to him, when did you realise you were a success? It wasn't that moment at Wembley in front of hundreds of thousands. It was purely just knowing right from the start that they had something really, really special. And that episode of Kirk was our last episode of season one of Not An Overnight Success. But we've got some great news. Thanks to all of your feedback, uh, we are going to be back with another season. Another 10 incredible people from the world of business, entertainment and sport talking about how they became the successes that they are. We'll be chatting with the likes of Twiggy Forrest, Deborah Lee Finesse, Lisa Wilkinson and many more. It'll also be another $100,000 going to various charities, all thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Shaw & Partners Financial Services, who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw & Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw & Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw & Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.